1: Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Joy Batra. Joy is the founder of Quartz Consulting, a freelance consulting firm that has advised startups, venture capital firms, and Fortune 500 companies. She previously worked at Goldman Sachs, Gunderson Detmer, and briefly as a Hollywood actress, and most recently as head of legal at Syndicate Protocol. Joy has lived or worked in India, Indonesia, South Korea, Thailand, the UAE, and the UK. She currently splits her time between New York City and Boston. She holds a JD MBA from Harvard University and a bachelor's from Boston College. And her book, The Freelance Mindset, was featured in the Washington Post, Fast Company, and Oprah Daily. Joy, welcome. Thanks for doing the show with me.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're going to focus today on freelancing, but let's start with your background. From reading your book, I know you've had a range of professional experience. You began as an analyst at Goldman, a traditional start in the scheme of things. How did you decide to do that?
2: I came of age at a really exciting time in the financial world. It was 2009 when I graduated from school, which meant I was recruiting in 2007 and 2008. And I think many of your listeners and you would remember what all was happening in the financial world at that time. It was super eventful and I was very focused on it as a student. I thought it was the most exciting place in the world. And I got to New York and it actually turned out to be the most exciting place in the world. I absolutely loved my job there. But after two summers and a year of full-time work there, I got into Harvard Law School and I kind of thought that I would just go to graduate school and come back and come back as an associate and maybe stay at Goldman for my entire career, like some of my colleagues had done. And it seemed like a great option. But then Once I got to school, I started to meet people from different paths of life. They started asking me questions about what I wanted to do with my one wild and precious life. And I started to really think about the answer, both professionally and also personally, because my dad had passed away. And Mm. I really just started to wonder, could I make a decision to stay in one place without having sampled anything else? And we wouldn't be here talking about freelancing if the answer was yes. I ended up taking a path of a little bit more adventure and trying quite a lot of different industries and professions before I I picked the one that I'm in now.
1: It sounds like in the book you mentioned kind of having, I'll say moments of doubt, even before you went to law school, before your father died, because you talked about this with him at the time, right? About whether that was the right course for you. And so you had a little bit of that sense that maybe you were kind of destined to go do something different even before you ended up going to law school, right?
2: Yeah, I started to get shadows of doubt I worked in compliance at Goldman, which was a great Mm. department, but it tended to recruit people who used to work at a law firm. A lot of people had practiced as lawyers and decided they wanted to do something that was maybe law adjacent, but not actually practicing law. And so as I was getting ready to go to law school or getting ready to apply to law school, I started to hear from people who maybe thought that law was not a lifetime vocation the way I had imagined it to be. And yeah, absolutely. I started to wonder if maybe I would also go to law school maybe go to a law firm, and then also find one day that this was not how I wanted to spend the rest of my career. And that made me really antsy about even deciding to apply to law school. As I talked about in the book, I brought this up with my dad, and we had always as a family of immigrants, basically, had a very clear plan that I would go to college, and then I would find a professional trade, whether that's law, medicine, engineering, and then commit to it for my career as I was having these doubts, I brought this up with my dad and, and he said, I don't think that this is really the right path for you. I mean, you really had the whole life plan set up. And admittedly he was on his deathbed and had more important things to think about than my career and changing it at the last minute. But I knew how important it was to him that I go to law school and have some sort of professional vocation. And so I applied, not necessarily knowing what would be on the other side of it, but but thinking that I would just go back and do what was familiar, which was go back to finance.
1: I know you did some internships with some law firms. Did you do that more from the perspective of just giving it a test you do get when you have those summer internship opportunities?
2: When I started graduate school, I was kind of fed this belief or I absorbed this belief from the world around me that if you don't go to a law firm right after graduation, you can never go to a law firm. I had this Mm curiosity about what it would be like to be at a law firm, and also a little bit of fear that if I didn't try this now, this opportunity would go away. Both of those things combined to make me try two different kinds of law. I tried East Coast, New York, kind of M&A law, and then I tried right. West Coast startup VC law. And I found that I did like the work a lot. I did wonder about the hours and lifestyle, but I really wanted to be able to sample and make an informed decision before I decided to go in one route. And in the end, I did accept a job at one of the law firms, which was the West Coast startup law, thinking that it would be you know, really dynamic and really fun. And, and it was as an intern. But then life took me in a different direction.
1: Yeah. So you didn't go back to Goldman. You didn't go into a law firm. You went to Bollywood. Yeah. So tell us about that.
2: I know if I had told my dad that on his deathbed, I don't know what he would have said. I think he would have started laughing. Bollywood to me was always an extracurricular. From college onward, I was on a dance team and I really enjoyed it. And the captain of our dance team after college went to India and she became a Bollywood actress and then she became a professional dancer. But all through law school, I would see her videos on social media and she's dancing under palm trees and I'm carrying these heavy case books into the the snowy fields of, of Boston and just kind of wondered what it would be like. After I graduated from grad school, I took the bar exam and then I had a little vacation. And I went to India, to Mumbai, where my family lives, and also where this friend lives. And I caught up with the friend and I was like, how did you do it? So she told me she had an acting class at one of these schools. Went to the school. I ended up taking the class and I got an audition. And at the end, I got a talent management agreement to act. And this one was really where I had to reckon with that fear of if I don't go to a law firm right out of grad school, will this door close forever? Will I be destroying my career for the rest of my life? And I was really scared, but at the same time, it felt like a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go act. It felt like this big adventure, and I didn't know what would happen next if I took this path. Luckily, I had a few friends who kind of had my back and nudged me to take the risk, and I ended up taking that risk and and moving to India. And and now we have a story and a completely different career and life path than I could have imagined.
1: I mean, not everybody goes and does something like that, right? Something so kind of non-traditional. I have some friends who have, and I think they look back on it, and say, I'm glad I did that when I was younger and I will always have that experience. And I didn't just go right into the office world. And I hope you feel that way about it. Definitely. Then you came back. You did not become a longtime Bollywood actress. You came back to the US and you started freelancing. How did you get into it and what were those early days like?
2: So I started freelancing when I was in India itself because having given up the law firm job, I had six figure student loans and I really needed cash fast. And My auditions, Mm -hmm. they were few and far between. And when they paid, it was in rupees and my loans were in dollars. And the math just wasn't mathing, as they say. I initially just started on one of these platforms. At the time, it was called Hourly Nerd, and now it's called Catalant. And I pitched for basically any project that was available. And eventually, a startup hired me to help them write their business plan. And then we were kind of off to the races. I was able to do some strategy consulting for startups, for investment funds, and for e-commerce companies that were operating in Asia. And I think that at the time, it felt like this amazing blend, because in the mornings, I could spend my time freelancing. And then in the afternoons, I could go do my other work and put on my makeup and my costume and go for my auditions and study acting and study Hindi and all that I needed to do. And it was ridiculous at the time, because I didn't realize that this kind of work life balance could exist, this type of career could exist, that I could choose what I wanted to work on. And that Mm -hmm. even when I was freelancing, I could sample so many different industries and different skill sets and functions at the same time. It was absolutely mind-blowing. I had actually given myself a deadline as a freelancer because I knew I had to come back and pay these loans. And so on the day of my deadline, I ended up getting cast in a music video and also getting selected for one of these consulting projects. And there was no remote work at the time. And so I had to pick one or the other. And I ended up picking the consulting project because I thought I can always figure out how to fit these two together. But This seems like a great opportunity. And then that brought me back to New York. It brought me back to a full-time job in the States and rebalancing of my life and career portfolio, which I think was for the best as I was changing and and the market was evolving. But I think that I never knew that I could step off the career ladder and then step back into a corporate world and even potentially look at going to a law firm. And sometimes we think our decisions are irreversible when actually we just don't know what comes ahead for us. And it's really that failure of imagination that gets in our own way when many more things are possible than we might have thought at the moment.
1: So you've gone back and forth between freelancing and being in full-time jobs since coming back from India. What's your mix look like now and what's ideal in your world?
2: I guess been a full-time freelancer three times in my career. And then other times I've worked full-time and I have freelance nights and weekends. And at the moment I have a full-time job. I am director of content at TechGC, which is a professional network for senior general counsels. And I freelance on the nights and weekends a little bit. I have a couple of companies that I advise in different industries related to creators and related to blockchain and, and other fields that I'm passionate about. And I think that for me right now, the pandemic changed a lot for me. I think that I was working remotely for many years before the pandemic and it worked when the rest of the world was analog, but when everything went remote, I started to really feel that isolation and that loneliness. And for me, it started to become very important to be part of a team and work on something that's much bigger than myself. 2021 or so was when I made the decision to leave freelancing and look for a full-time work and I ended up joining a company and have been mostly full-time ever since then. And I think the ideal mix for me right now is to have some sort of platform, which is a full-time job and then keep my hand in some other projects, whether that's as an advisor, whether that's as a contractor. But I find that having a little bit of extra projects really allows me to build my network, allows me to develop different skills that I'm not developing in my day job because we can only focus on so many things at one time. And then it gives me the freedom to work on creative projects without necessarily having financial constraints on what I consider my art. And right now my art is writing, but at times it's been acting, at times it's been dancing. And we've been all over the gamut but having that stable base allows me to be more creative
1: what prompted the idea of writing a book
2: it was kind of strange as a student i really did not like writing and it yeah. was weird because i was getting good grades at it but i just didn't enjoy it i associated it with all-nighters and a lot of stress and then when i went to india for acting i was taking hindi classes and i actually had to write some stories in hindi and the stories turned out surprisingly good. And the weirder thing was that they were fun to write. And so then I started to realize, oh, maybe I don't like writing because I'm not choosing what I'm writing about and I'm not writing it Mm -hmm. necessarily when I want to be writing it. It's been almost 10 years since I started this writing journey. And it started with this really horrible magical realism novel, which nobody shall ever see again. And I spent some time writing that, trotted it out to conferences, got very deserved nose (laughs) on that document. And Then went back to the drawing board and thought, okay, well, I like to write, but I also need to write something that's useful. And it started to dawn on me that this freelancing journey was something that more and more people were becoming curious about. So I had friends who were leaving their jobs or trying to change their careers. And they were asking me, how can I add a different career into my life mix? How can I get a new skill? How can I shift? And I was coaching them through it individually. And then the pandemic happened and a lot of people were displaced and had to look for freelance work. And I started to think, oh, okay, maybe this is how I can be of service. And so I compiled everything that I had learned in those almost ten years of freelancing and then interviewed 50 freelancers to find out what everybody else was doing and packaged it up to give that back. So people don't necessarily have to make the same mistakes that I made.
1: What is the freelance mindset? How would you describe it?
2: So the freelance mindset means not just thinking like a freelancer, but thinking of yourself like a company would. In the old days of my life, I don't know if everybody was fed this story, but I and many of my friends grew up thinking that if you study hard, you work hard, you get a good job, and then you're kind of set for life. And maybe you stay there for your whole career, maybe you don't, but you are sort of taken care of. The freelance mindset is the opposite of that. It means you take care of yourself. It's self-care and it's self-reliance. And as a freelancer, you really are responsible for thinking about everything you need, whether that's income or revenue, whether that's benefits, whether that's time off, whether that's broader network, more leadership opportunities, different skill sets and training, all of that is holistically, but you need to be managing that proactively as a person and not necessarily depending on a company to take care of it for you. Even within a company, many of us do have full-time jobs. Even within a company, you still have to know to advocate for yourself, to be able to reach for what you want and to move into the direction of your goals. And So thinking like a freelancer actually becomes very helpful, whether you're freelance or have a full time job, because it allows you to steer your ship in the direction that you want to go.
1: And in that sense, and you make this point in the book, freelancers are entrepreneurs.
2: Yeah, I think for a long time, freelancers haven't necessarily gotten the credit that they deserve. I think a lot of times in our society, we really look up to entrepreneurs, and rightfully so. Entrepreneurs are incredibly talented and achieve a lot of really impressive things but they have the same skill set that a freelancer has. A freelancer needs to come up with their own product, their business model, maybe develop a team, learn how to articulate it in a sales pitch, negotiate the contract, set their rates, know their product placement their competitive strategy, execute on the work, do their taxes, do their legal agreements, literally everything. Freelancers are so self-reliant and they just don't get credit for the amount and the skill that they bring to the work that they do in order to make it in their industry. I think, yeah, absolutely. We should be thinking of freelancers like entrepreneurs, and we should be thinking that everybody's a freelancer because we are.
1: We all have some sense of entrepreneurship, and us, some of us exercise it in different ways. I think probably the negative connotation that goes with freelancing is, oh, like the person just bounces from jobs. Now there are all sorts of negative connotations about it that are unfair. But as you say, it's like you have to do everything for yourself. You not only have to do whatever you're good at, you have to sell whatever you're good at. You have to do all of the administrative stuff that for people working in a company gets done for you, like payroll and collecting bills and all of those kinds of things. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what freelancing is. And, and you got into some of that through these interviews that you did. How did the research process really help you crystallize what you wanted to cover in the book?
2: Yeah. So the research process was really driven by looking at a very broad range of freelancers So we had people in the arts and I opened the book with a story of a man who started his own circus, but sometimes freelancing feels like a circus, but it isn't always just that. And so we went through the knowledge workers and some of them are engineers or also dabbling in the arts on the side. And then we have people who are more kind of in the skills and tactical areas, people who are baristas, people who are music teachers, people who are contractors and roofers and looked at kind of the gamut. And what I really wanted to understand was why are people freelancing? And I think that the misconception that comes up about freelancers versus entrepreneurs is that when we look at an entrepreneur, we know very clearly what metric they're solving for. We know they're trying to maximize the valuation of their company or revenue. And so it's easy to say who has succeeded and who has failed because you can say, oh, this company continues to exist, it's profitable, it's a unicorn, whatever you may say. With a freelancer, There are actually three different reasons that a person might start freelancing. One of them is income, but the other two are things like time and creative fulfillment, which are much harder to measure. So from the outside, when somebody doesn't necessarily know why a freelancer is transitioning from project to project, it gives space for people to make their own misconceptions about what that freelancer is solving for, when actually it may not be a reflection of a freelancer's talent, it may actually be kind of a symptom of the person optimizing for a greater life purpose and a greater life goal. That was something I really uncovered through my research and really tried to understand the arc of what drew people to freelancing, what encouraged them to stay, and when they shifted out of it if they did. And, and many went back and forth from freelance to full time.
1: If there's another probably inaccurate connotation about freelancing, it's this image of a solopreneur working from the beach or from their holiday villa. But in reality, I think you heard it takes a lot of different forms.
2: I think we have a very binary understanding of freelancing, especially for those who are not freelancers. You think, oh, somebody's either a freelancer or they're not. And if somebody is a freelancer in this very binary world, you think exactly that, that person is a digital nomad and they're really just traveling the world doing random projects. When in reality, we have a full spectrum. Freelancing is the most flexible job in the world. And because it's so flexible, people are doing it in all different permutations. So there are the folks who are, yes, digital nomads and full time freelance. But then you have on the opposite extreme, people who have a full time job and maybe have a side hustle that they don't even monetize, but they care deeply about. And then in between, you have the half jobs. So you have a part time worker who's also freelance. And then you have somebody who's freelance and then also cobbling together a mix of things. And we really need to understand, this is why I think we're all freelancers is because we're always changing the balance of how do we spend our time? Where do we get our income from? And what brings us joy? And all of those things are what we care about in our life portfolio or in our career portfolio. And we sometimes just get very limited in thinking about careers as a ladder where you just go from one title to the next, maybe same company, maybe same industry, but it's not that linear anymore.
1: No, it's definitely not that linear. And I think particularly on the back of COVID and the fact that we've proved that you can work remotely in a lot of instances, maybe not forever and ever, but certainly for periods of time. And these platforms have arisen. You were on one of them, Upwork and Fiverr, and there are all sorts of other ones out there that are also available. I mean, they've created marketplaces for these kinds of situations, whether you're looking for somebody on a freelance basis or are a freelance person. I mean, it's it's a very different world certainly it's funny to hear you talk about oh i you know thought about work you went you succeeded you did good work you'd succeed you'd work with that company for forever because you know i feel like that's my generation started to shed that as we watched our parents it, i mean it didn't happen for them that sort of social contract has been changing for decades now and and this may be kind of the next evolution of it at the same time a lot of people probably think about this, but they're held back, right? They're held back by fear. And you talk about some of those fears in the book. What are some of the things that you wrote about in the book that hold people back from jumping into a freelance work construct?
2: Yeah, I think fear is very valid when it comes to freelancing. And that kind of fear is very protective for us because it keeps us from going into our manager's office and quitting our job without a plan or a client lined up. And then next thing you know, you're stuck. So The fears are very reasonable. The fear is that I'll run out of money. The fear is that I won't have benefits. The fear is that I won't be able to sell the next project. And I think that what people, when they're thinking about either getting more flexibility or adding to their career by bringing freelancing into the mix, it's really important to face those fears because they're not coming out of nowhere and then come up with a plan to deal with them. And so I usually encourage people to line up at least two clients, if not three, before they decide to go full-time freelance if that's a jump that they're trying to make. But if they're not trying to make that jump, don't make it. Start very small. Can Mm. you start a side hustle? Can you make a website? Can you think about what your offering would be? Can you pitch a client? You don't need to upend your life overnight. And often that doesn't work very well for us. I would suggest that people take a very bite-sized approach to changing their life. Just find the next step, figure out what it is that you're solving for. Is it money? Is it time? Is it creative fulfillment and then find the next step that you can do to bring that into your life. And that might mean adding a client, but it doesn't mean wholesale, just jumping into the freelance life because you can survive if you have to. And people have, but that isn't plan A.
1: So when someone's thinking about this, how should they go about deciding what they actually want to do?
2: If you can think about the three things that freelancing can bring you, and we've talked about time, money and creative fulfillment. And I would say under money, That could mean cash. It could also mean skills that could then lead to cash. It could also mean expanding your network, which could then lead to income down the line. Those are kind of the concrete things that freelancing could bring you. When somebody is deciding whether or not to do freelancing, the other thing that tends to come up a lot is whether or not they should monetize their joy. Like the classic Mm -hmm. example is somebody has a day job, but feels this really strong artistic longing to do something and maybe they even know what that something is. But they're wondering, should they quit their job and go and pursue that full time? I would pretty much never (laughs) advise anyone to quit their job unless they already have a place to go somewhere else. But the question about monetizing your joy is so incredibly personal because the second you start to turn your artistic work into a business, it really changes the dynamic of the work and you have to not solve for creative fulfillment anymore. You are solving for what will be commercial and what can allow you to have a future in that industry and people when they're thinking about what they want to do next really think about if you have something joyful that's calling you are you ready to turn it into a business do you want to try and see how that feels before you go into it wholesale and and that's what i'd recommend and a lot of times you'll see people go full-time from a corporate world into the arts and then come back to the corporate world and that is kind of a good choice for those people because having that stability allows them to take greater risk in their auditions allows them To say no to projects that they're not excited about and then allows them to take the pressure off themselves, just in general, of being an artist.
1: Yeah. I mean, a little bit like your example of you with writing, right? When you had to do it in college, it wasn't so fun, right? When you could do it on your own terms and on your own topics, it's a completely different thing. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, you take something that you really love doing, right? Whatever it is, could be an artistic thing, could be spending time in the outdoors. I want to make a job out of this. And then, The problem is sometimes it works and then other times you just suck the joy right out of it. And it's hard to figure out, I'm sure it's hard to figure out for a lot of people, which of those two destinations they're going to end up in, right? Is it something that they do monetize their joy and they still like it or they don't like it when they're done? And those are the ones, I guess, who come back into the corporate world and say, okay, been there, done that, didn't really like it, I'll keep it as a hobby.
2: Yeah. I mean, we get wisdom or adage so often that you have to be passionate about your work. And there's that old saying that do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And people discover that that's not true. I think you need to feel good about your job. I don't know that it needs to be your number one passion in existence for being. It can also just enable the things that you feel really excited about, and that can be a good outcome too. So a lot of times folks will come to me. I've talked to an actor recently who, he was a full-time actor and then he took a full-time job and he went into this kind of existential crisis where he's asking himself, am I still an artist even though I have Hmm. a job? And you are. The answer is yes. And he did end up doing well at his job, but then being able to kill it in his auditions and also being able to walk away from projects that he really did not want to do. Whereas when he was a full-time actor, he would have had to take them in order to make rent. And I think you will never know whether you're going to be the person who loves monetizing your joy or not, unless you try it. And that's why I say, take the pressure off, just do it in a small bite-sized stage. And if you can take one audition, if you can do one project and see if that resonates, see if you want to do another one make that decision one by one. You don't have to do it all at once.
1: It's very true. You also bring up Ikigai, which is one of my all time favorite frameworks, because it's just so simple and practical. You know, It isn't just about what are you passionate about, right? It's what are you passionate about? What are you good at? What does the world need? What can you get paid for? right? And that last part is particularly important because if you're really passionate about something that nobody's going to pay you for, keep it as a passion. <laughs> And, yeah. and a hobby. And that's a joy you probably can't monetize if you don't think people are willing to pay for it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And we think that we have to have this one career where we sit at the center mm. of Ikigai's four circles. And you can, if you can find that one thing, and some people do, but you can also be two points in the circle. You can have the thing that you're good at that the world needs and can also get paid for. And then the other thing that you really enjoy and maybe you don't get paid for it, maybe the world doesn't need it, but you do it anyway. And that's fine. As a freelancer, you can have that kind of portfolio in your career.
1: What are some of the skills? You did this for 10 years. What are some of the skills that you need to be a successful freelancer?
2: The number one skill to be successful as a freelancer is being able to be curious and engaged with the world. And I think that sounds very high level. But the thing is that most freelancers are finding their jobs through their weak ties and through their connection. For me, Mm -hmm. for example, I got one of my biggest ever strategy consulting projects in an acting class. My scene partner actually was a consultant at a major firm, and she happened to be also filling this role and, you know, one conversation led to another and ended up that I was the right fit. But I'm not the aberration there. I mean, yes, maybe acting class is rare, but LinkedIn recently replicated this study. I want to say like two years ago by asking folks, where did they find their jobs? And the vast majority are finding it from people who are one or two degrees removed from them. And that's the the classic weak ties study that was true in the 70s and is true today. As a freelancer, you're working alone, possibly you're working remotely. And how are you going to find that next gig? It's going to be by engaging with the folks in your team, but also engaging with all the other people that you interact with in a day where you go to get coffee, where you go for exercise, the communities you're a part of. I think that's the number one skill to longevity as a freelancer. And I think that allows you to really pivot as markets ebb and flow, as different projects come into and out of fashion, it allows you kind of change with the times because you're engaged and you know what people need and you can put yourself in that room.
1: Yeah, you also, I mean, you talk about portfolio of different things. You talk about different sources of income, distinguishing between what you call active sources and passive sources. Talk a little bit more about that, because I think that's important in most freelance situations is that you don't necessarily put all of your eggs in one basket.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If we're going to use this metaphor of the career as a portfolio, you would want your portfolio, like any investment portfolio, to be diversified. And you wouldn't want all of your income to come from one client. But if you can also have it not all come from one skill set, that would be ideal. And so having a mix of different skills, I'll give the example of one freelancer I interviewed. She's an entrepreneur, but she was also a UX consultant. And she's also a professional dancer. And dance was The biggest source of her revenue, I'd say in like 2019 and then 2020 hit, and all of a sudden the performing arts ground to a halt. And because she was also a UX designer, she was able to very seamlessly replace the income that she lost by not being able to dance, by being able to double down on this part of her portfolio. absolutely encourage folks to have a different mix of skill sets because you never know which part of your portfolio is going to thrive in the coming cycle. But then if you can also have a mix of active and passive income, that's even more important because the active freelancers are selling their time and are very much constrained generally by the number of projects or the number of hours they can work in a given year. So to the extent that you can set things up to be able to take a one time investment of your time and then generate revenue passively while you're not paying attention to it, I think is really important. And so what that can look like will be different for everyone. I go through some examples in the book. Some of that classic one is investing, or if you can be a landlord, eventually that would be ideal. Other ones can be things like setting up a course and you do the one time of setting up a course and then set up your advertising. And then hopefully that can drive its own business, but you don't have to actually be there for every classroom recording because you've recorded it once. I really encourage freelancers to build a little flexibility into their portfolio by having both the active and the passive and being able to then give themselves a break when the market is slow, when they need to take a sick day, they know that something else is working for them in the background.
1: You also talk about rabbits and antelopes and giraffes.
2: Yeah, my three favorite animals, the rabbits and the antelopes. This is a theory that came from a couple of strategists. So one is Paul Begala and the other one is James Carville. And they they mention in their book that a lion could basically on the savanna chase either rabbits or antelopes and if the lion goes after the rabbits they'll catch them but running after rabbits really takes more calories from the lion than he will get back by catching a rabbit the lion then is encouraged to go after the antelopes which is a little bit bigger a little meatier and they can sustain the lion for a while so it's worth the chase i mean the same is true for our businesses and i've added a third one which is the giraffe if we think about the different goals that we can spend our time on The rabbits are really, really tempting because there are so many of them. People are happy when we cross these things off our list and they can be Mm. small and easy to do. We end up spending a lot of our time on them when we should be spending. An example of that would be social media posting or engaging with comments. They're important to do, but the payoff is uncertain and it can take a lot of time. Then in the middle is the antelope, which is a little bit more meaty. And that could be something like landing a client that will keep you going for a few months, maybe even a year if you're lucky, and kind of drive the business forward and sustain you in a meaningful way. But the third one is the giraffe. And that's the one that's really distant goal on the horizon. And until I researched for this book, by the way, I didn't know that lions actually chase giraffes, I didn't know sometimes that they win. But it's rare, but it does happen. And that's the same thing with the goal that we should have. It's something that's once in a lifetime that maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But if you do, it would really put you in the stratosphere. For an entrepreneur that would be founding a unicorn for somebody else that might be winning an oscar or a new york times bestseller or something like that Mm. and i think that as freelancers when we're setting our goals it's really really important to shift the balance so that we know what we're aiming for in the long run like what is this massive once in a lifetime thing that we're hoping for and the antelopes and the rabbits that we're chasing do they even lead us in the direction of this giraffe or are they taking us somewhere else entirely and so it's important to kind of keep yourself honest and also look at your days to see how much time are you spending on each task? And is that actually going to serve you in the long run?
1: You talk as well about the interplay of all these things, right? You're active, your passive, your rabbits, your antelopes and creating another metaphor uses the flywheel effect, right? And your sources of income and talk about how that plays out and maybe some of the examples that you heard in your research.
2: Yeah, so it's really ideal if you can get this flywheel set up and we talk about it in business a lot, but for a freelancer, what you'll want is for everything to essentially be pointing in the same direction. If you are creating a book, for example, this is, by the way, partly my research, but it's partly also David Perrell's research. This is the example of his flywheel. For David Perel, he's a really big thought leader on Twitter and a few other platforms. Every time he posts on that, he grows his community, which then allows him to collect email addresses for his newsletter, which then allows him to market a course that he has set up. And by the way, the material from his course comes from what he is creating in his social media posts and what he's writing in his newsletter. And the course is probably one of the biggest drivers of his revenue engine, but the course and the social media and all of those, as they grow, they bring him new consulting clients and Mm -hmm. all of that then drives more revenue, which then drives testimonials, which cause people to follow him on Twitter or wherever to sign up for his newsletter, sign up for the course, and then hire him if they can. And it goes in a circle. So to the extent that you can get momentum behind your activities where one supports the next, that's really ideal. But I think a lot of times as freelancers, we get caught up in scarcity or we get very busy with deadlines. And so we either think that mm. we have to accept any project that comes our way, or we're just so busy executing on what we've already accepted that we don't think about the direction that we're going in. We're at the moment thinking about what the next quarter, or what the next year could look like. and. It's a really great moment to think about whether the activities you're spending your time on can then generate their own revenue, generate their own momentum, and support each other, or if they're completely siloed. And if they are, do you have the resources, the bandwidth to be able to do two parallel track careers? You might, but you want to be honest with yourself about the answer.
1: You mentioned periods of scarcity, boom or bust, periods that invariably, I would imagine, hit almost any freelancer out there. How do you cope with periods of scarcity? How do you not screw up the periods of windfall you know, or abundance? I
2: think when you're investing, I think you want to be counter cyclical. And when you're a freelancer, the same idea is true. Whatever is happening right now, the only guarantee is that it will be different in the future. We don't know what direction will be different, but it will change. In the moments of scarcity, the temptation is, of course, to think like, oh, all this money will be coming in forever. I can make the purchases that I've held off on. And the answer is maybe you can, some of them you need to, but Can you live like you're in the, sorry, in the moments of abundance? Um, Can you live like you're in the moments of scarcity? And if you can, that will tide you over so that you have more runway, so that you have a longer ability to survive when the scarcity comes around. And on the flip side, when you're in these moments of scarcity, I think the hardest thing, one is the finances and the other is the psychological piece of it, because we feel like this moment where no client wants to work with us or nobody's hiring we feel like that's going to last forever. When you're in a busy season, by contrast, you're probably not spending as much money. You're not thinking about what to do because you're just executing on the work that you need to do. And you might have all these ideas of things that you want to do, but you just don't have the time for. My advice to people is to make that list when you're in that moment of abundance, when you don't have the ability to do all these projects, not just write down what do you want to do, but write down why it matters to you in this moment. Because when you get to that scarcity, moment and you have nothing to do, you'll look at the list. And if it's just a list of things that you want to do, eh, that doesn't really matter. I mean, the most important thing for me right now is to actually find my next client. It might be depending on how much runway you have. But if you have the time, looking at why these things matter to you can help you get in touch with that level of curiosity and engagement with the world, which then brings you to the places where you meet the weak ties, which leads you to be curious about what's currently happening in the market, what you can offer, what you're good at. And to find a new value proposition, because a lot of times when you're in these moments of scarcity, the market is in transition. Maybe your skills are not valued the way they were a couple of months prior. And so you need to articulate that new value proposition you have, show how what you can do is relevant to the problems people are facing now, and show that you're offering something fresh. And uh, it's, it's really, it's one of the hardest things to do, And I think it's what makes freelancers so resilient and so gritty, mm-hmm. because to succeed as a freelancer, you have to be able to make it through these droughts.
1: You do. And, you know, you. I mean, we all identify or part of our identity is tied up in the work that we do, right? I think it's particularly unique when you're a freelancer, right? It's got to be easy when you're in those periods of drought to think like, I'm a failure. I'm never going to get another client. I need to go back to the traditional corporate world. How do you counsel people to not let identity get too tied up in the way that they're thinking about what they're doing?
2: Yes. Counsel is such a great word because I am not a counselor, but I highly recommend any form of therapy, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, I think is great. There's a book that I think I talk about in my book, but it's called Feeling Good by Dr. Burns. And it essentially kind of lists a number of these thought distortions, things like I'm a failure, I'll never get a job again, I've ruined everything, and then helps you find a rational way of of talking back to them, because our thoughts aren't facts. And in the low Mm. moments, we really feel like oh, this is true. I'm just being rational and being realistic. No, what you're really doing is making yourself feel worse and finding yeah. it harder to dig yourself out of the hole. Having some sort of mindfulness or awareness practice where you even know what you're thinking that you can then counter whether or not this is true, whether or not some other alternative reality might be available, like some other skill you can offer, some person that you can reach out to for coffee that you haven't reached out to yet, some other way of marketing yourself. I think having those tools in your toolkit they're great for a freelancer they're also great for non-freelancers but i believe everyone's a freelancer so (laughs) that's one thing as a freelancer you have to kind of separate your identity from your work and in the corporate world it's very easy to confuse what you do for work with who you are as a person because you're on so-and-so's team you have this title you work for this company and it becomes really shorthand for who you are as a Mm. freelancer all of that vanishes because every time you meet somebody new You have to kind of create who you are in that person's mind for the first time from scratch. When I first started as a freelancer, this was really hard and kind of demoralizing and scary. And I went to my reunion and explained that I was a freelancer and at business school, nobody got it. And it was a very isolating experience, but it's really healthy for you in the long run to figure out how to separate the two. And so cognitive behavioral therapy has a lot of techniques for that. I think also just recognizing that when you're leaving the corporate world there is a moment of grief and loss that can happen because you had one vision of who you are and how you fit into society and what you had to offer and now things are different and they might be good different you might have chosen this different but you're still starting from the beginning again and you're still starting from scratch and really allowing the fact that yeah this is a transition that might not seem worth mourning And we call that disenfranchised grief but It actually is because it's taking a toll on your psyche. And so the fact that you can address that head on and know this is a loss that I'm suffering and I'm doing it for this reason or it will get better for this reason, that kind of brings you out of it. And when you go through this process and you have to do this many times over a career because it'll happen over and over again, yeah, but that makes you more resilient in your career, not just because you can then get up and pitch yourself to the next client, but because you can take feedback better, you can absorb the ways that your work needs to change without taking it personally without confusing yourself for the work. And then that helps you perform better in the long run and really find new ways to adapt to the market as it changes, because that's all any of us are doing. The world is always in flux.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of other things that make freelancing hard, right? Like just the risk of isolation, the feeling like there's always something more you should be doing, imposter syndrome. You talk about, I think most of these in your book. How do you advise freelancers to cope with those. I mean, the
2: first step is, of course, mindfulness to know what problem you're even trying to solve. Because Mm. the thing about something like imposter syndrome is you really believe that you're seeing the world accurately and you really think that you're not to be responsible for your successes and that everything has been a fluke until you or somebody else can kind of call you out and say, wait, no, that's a distortion. No, you actually did X, Y and Z. That is useful. If you can be mindful and monitor, hey, I don't feel so good. Oh, what was I thinking? Oh, let me work on that. Or even better is having a community and really being able to find a place to share what's going on, what you're struggling with. And I think that's particularly hard for freelancers, given that we work independently. And that's why it's so important to really stay engaged with all the different aspects of your life, because we're not going to have one community. Just like at this point, we don't have one career. We're going to have pockets of community for the different identities that we bring into the world and really being able to troubleshoot through that. But I guess since you asked about imposter syndrome specifically, I think a couple of things come up. One hack that I heard from an actor was to imagine it's your second time doing something. And I think Mm. that can be useful. I think it takes a little bit of practice. I don't know if it's necessarily the most uh, natural thing for me to do the first time I tried it. But then the other thing that can be useful is to like, understand what the different types of imposters are. And when you know what the archetypes are, you can start to see patterns. And so I go through a few of these. They're not from my research. I cite the researcher in the book. But there are certain ones like the perfectionist imposter who believes they have to have every answer correct. There's the one who believes that they have to be a natural success at everything. And the fact that they're working hard now means they're a failure. So that's a different kind of imposter. And to know which types you tend to gravitate toward is really useful, because then as you get into a situation where you struggle and where you fail, you can start to think about, oh, this is what I would habitually respond with. Can I try something else? That's Mm. what freelancers are doing all the time is just trying new things.
1: One broader question I wanted to ask you that I've certainly been thinking about is, you know, is all of this sort of whatever you call it, right? Side hustles, freelancing, hustle culture. Continues to take root. You've got these platforms, as we talked about earlier. I always wonder: like, is the corporate world going to become an anachronism? We eventually move to a world where the majority of people are operating in kind of this freelance mode, or will it always remain kind of a a subset, you know, a minority of of the economy? I don't know if you've thought about it and have a view, but I'm curious.
2: I love that question, and I think that it's going to be complicated because if you look at the different incentives of people, I think on the corporate side, the incentive is very much clear to move as many people from full-time to fractional work as possible. It's more cost-effective and especially as cycles seem to get faster and more volatile, it would really preserve the corporation on that end. On the flip side for mm-hmm. individuals, it's a mixed bag. I think you know for some slices of the population, being only a freelancer is great because it allows them either to thrive along the dimensions that we've talked about. But for another slice of the, the population, they really need to be able to have some sort of stability and some sort of benefits. And so right now we're talking from the United States where there is really not much of a social welfare state. And right. given that the incentives of workers will then be to tie themselves to a corporation, now, if that changes and people yeah. are able to get benefits, are able to get unemployment insurance or payment, then I think more people would be inclined to gravitate toward freelancing. But regardless, we're seeing this trend accelerate and pick up momentum. Upwork just released its new, I think, freelance forward study last week, which talked about more people than ever are freelancing. So I think we're now at 38% of the American workforce. And as you look wow. at the generations, yeah, yeah, this is the highest ever. And you look at the generations, millennials, I believe, are at 44%. So we're almost at the halfway point, but for Gen Z, 53% have a side hustle. And this is how Gen Z came of age in the workforce. It's Mm. kind of their way of working. Will they be setting the norm? I think they will. So as the workforce shifts in age composition, we are going to see the majority of people start to freelance, but it's really going to depend on can people take care of themselves and be able to really have all their basic needs met as freelancers or independent workers. And right now that's not necessarily possible. We as a society just need to do a better job of taking care of people and making the work sustainable.
1: Certainly the availability or lack of availability of health insurance and other things that you need in life is a limiting factor for a lot of people. And we've got the Affordable Care Act. I don't know whether there will be anything more that happens on that. As you know, it's been a very polarizing topic in, in the United States. But it will be interesting to see, particularly for this Gen Z population that you mentioned, you know, will they gravitate toward the traditional world when they have families, have other people that they need to provide health insurance for them besides themselves and have other forms of obligations that they need to be mindful of and just seek out safety and security as opposed to, the, I'll say, the flexibility that comes with doing full-time freelancing. I'm kind of curious to see how it all plays out.
2: Yeah, me too. And I think that a lot of people are starting to find that freelancing makes them feel more secure and more stable than a full time job because of what we were discussing earlier, where you don't have all of your eggs in one basket. And many people have experienced layoffs in the last few years. That is becoming more common and whatever will allow people to feel whole and it may end up being freelancing.
1: Yeah, very true. Any last advice Do you want to give our audience on freelancing or any other topic?
2: I would just say take a small experiment. I have a feeling that we all have something that we're curious about, something that we don't prioritize because we don't necessarily think it'll bring in a lot of income, or we don't know how to carve out time for it. But those are the things that make us interesting. Those are the things that help us find other paths that we can monetize to make new relationships, keep us fresh. And you never know where that will lead. That may lead you to Bollywood. It may lead you somewhere else. And I'd be curious to hear about it.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for doing this.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's a topic I hadn't really covered before on the show. So I was glad that we were able to meet last month. when we were both at the Thinker's 50 conference and get to know each other a bit and conjured up this idea of doing this. So again, thanks. Yes, thank you. Sure thing. Take care. Talk yeah. soon. Bye. I want to thank Joy for joining me today to cover the world of freelancing, her book, The Freelance Mindset, and her own career journey. If you'd like to make the most of your career, visit pathwise.io and become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at PathWise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.